I've shared this with you before, but I, I mean, I, I really do mean this. I, I really, really, really enjoy studying the Word of God, and I really enjoy even putting sermons together, and I really enjoyed even practicing them. Now, the odd thing is, I like doing this even more than I like preaching them. Isn't that, that's, I don't know, that's weird maybe. Um, so, like, I, will, I, I honestly, even last night, I was in my bedroom, and I was going over my notes, and uh, I have a treadmill in my bedroom. That's really weird, isn't it? But like, so I'm walking on the treadmill. I do this a lot on Saturday nights. I'm walking on the treadmill. I'm going over my notes, just thinking and praying and thinking and praying. And God is just all over me, man. I'm just weeping on the treadmill last night. I love, love to study the word. You, I mean, I don't, it is such a joyous act of worship for me to be able to study and prepare and write sermons. It is such a joy for me to do this. I can't tell you how much I love it. I love it. I love it. I don't want to do anything else. I was telling somebody the other day, uh, I was like, man, I don't care if I had $10 million. I don't think I'd do anything else. So I love this. I love that the Lord allows me to, to do this. And so I'm excited to get in today to the, to the message. And um, Man, I think the Lord has really shown me something significant this last week, and I can't wait to share that with you. Let me open with this one big idea. There's a, a thought that's been running through my mind a lot, and it's basically this. We don't know what the purpose of power is. We don't know what the purpose of power is. We don't know what the purpose of power is. The government doesn't know what the purpose of power is. CEOs don't actually know what the purpose of power is. Like we're all striving relentlessly to get more power. The government doesn't know what the purpose of power is. CEOs don't know what the purpose of power is. Wealthy people don't know what the purpose of power is. Uh, The people that are in power, the people that are not in power, they don't know what the purpose of power is. I mean, my goodness, MMA fighters, they don't understand. Like, they're all striving to be the strongest and the best. And the, We don't know what the purpose of power is. I just want to offer that thought to you. We don't know what the purpose of power actually is. Mark 4, 35 through 41. Let's look at power. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus calms the storm. I'm going to read the text to you, and then I want to kind of use our imaginations. We at Trinity, we redeem our imaginations. Let me read it, and then we're going to imagine it. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. This is the he is Jesus in this context. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Man, that either shows how tiring the ministry was or the miracle of rest given to him. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with the great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I, uh, I love art. I, I, man, I always loved art. Um, even when I was in high school, so I played, I've shared this before, but like I, when I played football, 
uh, in high school. I was also in art classes all the way through. So I did like advanced art. I was the only guy in a football uniform in the advanced art classes. I always loved art. I just was kind of, and I, it's not that I was even all that good at it, uh, but I always enjoyed art for sure. And so even now, I want to show you, this is uh, Rembrandt. Uh, I got a picture for you. You can pull this up. Jesus calls from, at least I think I have it, and they're doing, yeah, there it is. This is Rembrandt's rendition of this. Like when he uses his creative imagination, this is how he sees it. I just want you to take a second and look at the picture. What would it really be like to be in a boat like this? You can leave the picture up for just a few minutes here. I remember being on a boat. I don't know if you have. Uh, I went snorkeling out in the ocean a few years ago. I was actually on a missions trip down in the Caribbean area. Back when I was a youth pastor, we flew a bunch of kids down there. And uh, we took one day to go have fun. And so the kids all wanted to do a snorkeling, a snorkeling adventure out in the ocean. So we loaded up all the students. We got on, it was like a catamaran. What are, I don't know if that's even the right word, but like those boats that have the netting that you can all gather people on and they start making their way out into the, into the ocean. And when you're on a boat that small and the waves are like feet high and you're doing like this and you're going further and further and further out trying to get to this right place to snorkel. I, it was the first time I'd ever done it. And I'm in the front kind of talking with the guide and it's like, you know, 25 feet deep, 50 feet deep, 100 feet deep, 205. I mean, it just like gets deeper and deeper and deeper in this little boat. And then you like go, they went right up to the edge where there's this drop off. And we stood, we were camping out right on the edge of this because there was like this coral reef there that we were going to go down and snorkel and see. And he's like, oh yeah, as soon as you go over the edge, this is like thousands of feet. I mean, just over the edge of this cliff in the ocean. And when you're on this little tiny boat and you're out in the ocean and it dawns on you like how much water is below you. And there's like big fish down there, right? And like Jonah pops in your head and all this stuff. It's kind of a terrifying feeling when you're in that. If you've ever been there, it's a little bit of a terrifying feeling. And then you put your snorkel on and you jump off into the ocean, right? And you start swimming out and checking things out and looking at the coral reef. And, and then all that, you turn around and look and you're like, you know, 25, you know, 30 yards maybe out from the boat. And then you're really alone in this huge ocean and you can look under the water and see the coral reef. And then you see where it just gets dark. The water is big. It's big. And it can be scary. Can you imagine? I, I only imagine, like, now the Sea of Galilee isn't the ocean, but I can only imagine what it would be like to be out on this. And, and in my mind, the way I see this, you know, and I, actually Rembrandt probably got this fairly right. Uh, if you can, which they have a number of these, you know, they can excavate these fishing boats from that era in Galilee. And this is about right. I mean, these boats literally were about 15 people. They could hold about 15 people. They were about 26 feet long, depending on the fishing boat. That's about average. They were about seven and a half feet wide. And the side on it was only probably four to five feet high. So you're four to five feet high in a boat hanging on. And a massive windstorm comes on you as you're out in the Sea of Galilee. And I mean, I looked it up. I was curious. I was like, how big do the waves get during a storm in Galilee? And it's not uncommon for them to get 10 feet high, four feet high. This is probably pretty accurate. 
And so, like, when I imagine this, like, in my mind, this story of Jesus calming the storm, I mean, it's a miracle that the dude's even sleeping. I mean, like, God was in all of every bit of this to demonstrate power. And so, like, in my mind, I can see Jesus. And, of course, and I have this hyperactive imagination. And literally, I was walking on the treadmill last night and, and practicing the sermon in my head. And I started weeping as I was thinking about this. And so uh, my allergies might bother me this morning, but like I'm there and I'm on the, I'm on the boat kind of with Jesus in my imagination. I'm doing like the lecta divina kind of thing, right? I'm thinking this through in my mind. And I can imagine like the, the disciples grabbing onto the side and hanging onto the rope and trying to keep control of the sail and, and on the rail and, and, and the storm. I mean, they're literally just trying to stay up and, and the scripture literally says the boat is filling with water. I mean, They're terrified, and they're fishermen. They're used to it. And in my imagination, right, like I can see, uh, you know, like Jesus in the back, and and they yell out over the atmospheric chaos. They yell for their, for their Savior. And I can imagine in my mind, you know, the yaw and the pitch going back and forth and the water spraying across the top and it's filling and the disciples are literally freaking out and I can see Jesus in my imagination he wakes and in my mind you know it's like he grabs the railing next to him and as he sits up it's like the wind and the waves and the water I mean I can I can see in my mind like his hair across his face and and whipping across his face. I can see his beard blowing in the wind. I can see like even his shirt whipping or his robe whipping in the wind. I can imagine how wet they probably were. I can imagine the fear in the moment and Jesus takes the helm in a sense. And then he says, and and, and here's the thing, like I don't think Jesus had to scream this out. I mean, when the very voice that created the universe speaks, you don't have to speak over anything. Everything listens to you. And like in the middle of this chaos, I can see Jesus like sit up. And he doesn't have to yell it. He doesn't have to scream it. I know in some translations it puts the exclamation point there. Fine, they can do that. But I just imagine this in my mind. He just says, peace. And it's like all in nature, all creation, everything just hits pause for a second. Because I mean, like, that's not a voice. That's the voice. That's the voice. He doesn't have to yell. He doesn't have to scream. It's the voice. He says, peace. And it's like everything just pauses for a second. And then he says, be still. And I don't know how it all went down exactly, but like in my imagination, I mean, it's like the boat just goes, and sits in the water. Clouds pull away. Imagine what was going through the disciples' minds. I mean, we actually know. 
I mean, the very last part of this scripture verse, they're talking to one another. They're so overwhelmed. I mean, they're still soaking wet, right? And they're still windblown and they're still, I mean, adrenaline is still rushing. I mean, that's right. If you could go up to like Peter, we have all these doctors in our church. You go up to like Peter and take his pulse. His blood pressure is off the top. I don't know, right? Like, I mean, they're still feeling the adrenaline rush of all this. And I love this text. I mean, they literally said to one another, who is this? Even the wind and sea, like even in the Greek, the idea is like even all of nature bows at his voice. Who is this? There are a few things I want to point out from this text. The first one is this. They were in the greater text of Mark. So again, remember, we don't just study a verse. We like to look at the context, historical context, literary context, um, and then at times we need to look at linguistic context. Right? We've got to understand these things. A couple things I want to point out. The first one is this. In the greater context of this, they are becoming enamored by his power. People are literally, at this point in his ministry, they are beginning to watch him heal the sick of incurable diseases. Like, I mean, how amazing is that? Like, Jesus just says, cancer, peace, be still. Leprosy. I mean, like, and even when you look at the greater stories and the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the other accounts of Christ, I mean, it's even like bones are, are, are atrophied, like a, a person that's been lame for years, atrophied muscle. It's like Jesus says, get up. And I mean, I can only imagine what that would look like to just watch, like, muscle begin to appear and legs straighten. I mean, like, this guy is powerful, unbelievably powerful. They're watching him heal the sick of incurable diseases. They're watching him control demons and the spiritual world. And they even, and even in this text, demonstrate absolute authority over nature. That's what they're watching happen in this. And so then, if you're paying attention to Mark and you read it like a novel, so instead of just reading like a, this is great, I love when you do like verse by verse stuff, that's wonderful, and do that, but it's also good to step back at times and just read the letters like a letter or read the books like a book. There's an arc, there's a story, there's a narrative in these books of the Bible. And if you're reading the arc, the narrative of the Bible, the question that the disciples are beginning to ask, I mean, the whole middle part of Mark is this, is what is Jesus going to ultimately do with all his power? That's the big question. What is Jesus going to ultimately do with all his power? That's the question. What is Jesus going to ultimately do with all his power? And they want him to do specific things in this text, right? Like, uh, if you lay Mark out like a novel, chapter 1, chapter 2, or act 1, act 2, act 3, John Mark divided the book of Mark into three primary acts, right? Like three big, large chapters in a sense, and we have a lot more little chapters in there, but three acts. Act 1, the first part of this, Jesus is displaying how powerful he is. Chapters 1 through 8a, the first part of 8. Sometimes the way they divide out the Bible with chapters and verses, I think, why did you do it that way? It's for another conversation, right? 
But the first act, the disciples, Jesus displaying how powerful he is, chapters 1 through 8a. And then act 2, the second big idea that's offered in the book is the disciples are trying to understand what this means, chapters 8b through 10. And then in act 3, the last part of Mark, Jesus now models what all this power and work is supposed to do, chapters 11 through 16. So after you hit this part of Mark where Jesus is displaying power, I mean the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, he is controlling demons in the spiritual world, he has total authority over nature. And then in that middle act, there's all these conversations. In fact, I'd encourage you to read the whole middle part of, actually read the whole book of Mark. Mark is amazing. It, John Mark, he writes like there's a GoPro on his head. And it's just like one big idea to the next big idea to the next big idea. And you're just trying to keep up with it. So if you want to go fast and get a lot of big things, Mark's a great book to read. But in that middle part of Mark, it is conversation after conversation of what they think he's supposed to do with all his power. In fact, I, I love one of these. There's a story in the second act of Mark where James and John, the brothers, in fact, in another account in the book of John, they call them the sons of thunder, and they come to Jesus, man. And when they come to Jesus, what they want him to do is they want him to put one on the right and one on the left. I want to be your right hand, Jesus. I want to be your left hand, Jesus. And when you look at that phrase, that colloquial phrase in history, literally what John and Mark are, or what, what John, James and John are saying is they're saying like, man, we want to be the power of God. We want to be the right hand of God. I mean, like the, the reality is the disciples still weren't understanding the, the, the purpose of power. They, in their imaginations, are imagining Jesus like doing big grand acts to take control of the world. So it's like we're going to bring Rome to its knees. And Jesus, when you get on your rightful throne, we want to be your right hand of power and your left hand of power. I mean, all of that language is so wrapped in to the Greco-Roman idea of what it means to have power over people. In chapters 11 through 16, the disciples still weren't understanding the purpose of power. Still weren't understanding the purpose of power. They are likely assuming in all of this middle section of Mark that Jesus will take out his opponent's and they want positions of power themselves when he assumes the throne. They want to be the right hand, the left hand. They want to be the honor. They want to be the strength. They want to be the protection. They want to be the power above others in royal courts. But the book of Mark is like a really fast-paced novel. I'm going to invite Josh up and, and I'm going to be done here in a few minutes. And so Jesus, over and over and over again, he's trying to show them what the purpose of power actually, actually, what is it supposed to actually do? And then as Mark progresses in the final act, Jesus is displaying the purpose of power. And there's a scene 
kind of like, if, again, if you're reading a novel or reading it like a novel, this is like the big crescendo moment of the whole book. This is it. This is the point of all of it. After countless demonstrations of power in John 21, 25, I'm referencing that, like there's more than these books could even tell. After countless demonstrations of power, Jesus chooses to let the very evil people, the disciples thought they were going to kill, or that thought they were going to fight off, Jesus lets them kill him. So the power over the world lets the people kill him. After Jesus is stripped, humiliated, misrepresented in court, and crucified, one of the soldiers who kills him, one of the soldiers, one of the soldiers who kills him looks up and makes a statement that actually defines the whole book of Mark and the purpose of Jesus and the purpose of power. This Roman soldier, this is the statement that defines the book of Mark. Mark 15, 39. So imagine it in your mind. Jesus has displayed this power over nature, power over the spiritual world. He can even, I mean, literally, even in Mark, Jairus' daughter, he's going to raise somebody from the dead. Like, he has total power. And then the disciples want him to use this power in all kinds of weird human ways, fallen human ways. And then Jesus in the last act is displaying this is what the use of power is for. And then... As he's being crucified, he chooses it. By the way, literally in the Gospels, it says that he allows it. Nobody does this to him in a sense. Like he allows this to happen to him. And so they beat him to a pulp. Come on, Jesus, where's your power? They falsely accuse him in court. Like, he could easily just be like, you're, not even do I need to prove myself right, he could easily just be like, your court doesn't even matter. But he lets it all go. Bleed him out, drag him, nail him to a tree. He's going through all this pain. What is the purpose of power? They rise him up, they raise him up, right? And they drop him, man. I don't know if you know much about Roman crucifixions, but it's like, you know, he's stripped naked because he was whipped. I mean, he's bleeding everywhere. He's pinned to the, the tree, the wood logs, and he comes up and they drop it in the hole and it just pops, even probably joints out of place. I mean, this guy's in crazy pain. And the Roman soldier, I mean, you can smell death in the air. Jesus dies. And the Roman soldier looks up and he says this, Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. wait. What is the purpose of power? Isn't it to conquer and beat up and take down? The purpose of power. It is reconciliation over revenge. 
It is reconciliation over revenge. The purpose of power is pardon over punishment. The purpose of power is compelling compassion to woo people over forceful coercion to make them do stuff. That's the purpose of power. The purpose of power is rescue over retaliation. See, here's the crazy thought, right? Like, Jesus didn't come to wipe Rome out. I just, I I, I can't be more clear about this. Jesus didn't come to wipe Rome out. He came to rescue Romans from evil. It wasn't just the Romans. He came to rescue all of us. The purpose of power, the purpose of power is to serve. The purpose of power is to serve. And this generous way of living is the mechanism to win hearts. That is the mechanism to win hearts. And that's the purpose is to win hearts. The purpose was to win hearts. The purpose is to rescue humanity, not merely wipe them out. The purpose was for that soldier to look up and go, surely that was the Son of God. The purpose of all of that power was to win hearts, not wipe them out. Mark 10, 45, right? So right in the middle of all this. So think of the big acts of Mark. Remember, don't just proof text the Bible. Man, 90% of bad theology or less than ideal theology, I'll be generous, is when people take a verse totally out of its context and then they plug it in over here in a political statement. It's like, wow, you really need to read the rest of that. So like Mark as a whole, act one, Go home and just read the whole book of Mark. You really should. That's not too much, Twitter world. Or X or whatever the new name is now. I don't even know. Thanks, Elon Musk. The first act of Mark, right, is Jesus coming and demonstrating all this power and miracles. And the second act of Mark, of course, there's overlap here a little bit. But the second act of Mark are the disciples and everybody trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do with this power, right? I mean, do we conquer people? I love it. Even in the other account, James and John, are, they literally call them the sons of thunder because in, not Mark, but in another account, right? They're walking through a town and these people don't agree with Jesus. And they're like, all right, Jesus, uh, should we call down fire now and wipe them out? Like, do we nuke this town now? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, you just really do not get this. They just rejected me. I'm not mad at them. My heart is broken. My children won't come home. And then in the third part of Mark, right, Mark 10, 45, right, like in this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
power, 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 power. What's the purpose of power? But the purpose of power is to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My friends, we don't want power to put people under us. We pray that God gives us resources so that we can serve them. That we might win their hearts. Because that's the point of all of this, is to win hearts. So here's the question, and and I'm just going to leave you with this. I just want to leave you with this question. Oh man, even now, Lord Jesus, let this question sit deep in us. Who do you use your power to serve? Who do you use your power to serve? Who do you use your power to serve? So what this means for me is, uh, and for us, um, and you, Darren, you can just leave that question up. It means that your most wayward child like your kid that's just an all-out rebellion or grandchild that's all-out rebellion, rejected God, rejected Christianity, running from the Lord, makes fun of what you do, picks on you for being a follower of Jesus, you know, bemoans and tears apart the church. and does the, I mean, the, the person, your family, that is the harshest to Christianity, I just want you to know this. I mean, hear me clearly. Your child is not my enemy. I want to rescue them from the lies of the enemy. Your child is not my enemy. We want to rescue them from the enemy. We want to use whatever resource, whatever gifting, whatever tool, whatever money, whatever influence, whatever leadership that God gives us We want to use it to do our best to win hearts in a million creative, unique ways because the end game is that even the evil of Rome embodied in that soldier in that moment, the end game is that even the most wayward movement in all of the Greco-Roman world, the end game is that that person would go, Surely, that's the Son of God. That's the purpose of power. So who do you use your power to serve? Lord, even now, I just feel in my heart I just need to hit pause and just let that question sit.
we want to provide you places to serve. Lord, I love you. I ask in your name that we would be a church that understands the purpose of power. That we would be a church that provides opportunities for people to serve. That we would be a church, Lord God, that that does not hate the world, but John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, even when we were sinners, right? You died for us. Help us to not hate the world, but desperately want to show your beauty to it. Who do you use your power to serve? Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps.